Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking to Tobias Carlisle, a returning guest. Tobias is a value investing expert who manages two ETFs, Zig and Deep. He's also written some amazing investing books, including Deep Value and The Acquirer's Multiple. If you haven't heard our first episode, I highly recommend that you go back through the archives and check that out. Welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be back. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So I thought we could start off talking about current market conditions. So neither of us actually uses macro in our process, but it's fun to talk about. So we're currently looking at the steepest inversion of the yield curve in history. So what's your take on that? Yeah, I talked to my co-host on my little podcast. I talked Jake Taylor. We talk about this a little bit, you know, don't get caught up in the macro because you can have these periods of time. So the early 2000s, I think, is the best example, right? Where market stupendously expensive, mm-hmm. very good value. And if you had been making decisions based on what you thought was happening in the market, like looking at the index, mm-hmm. you would have missed one of the generational value opportunities that went for seven years, massively outperformed. So you always want to be careful when you're doing those. This is me talking to myself, but as much as I'm talking to everybody else, I say, be careful when you're sort of making these market level prognostications. But I do think you can have two things in your mind at the same time. And so when I say macro, like macro can get very, very macro. It is a little bit reading the tea leaves and I'm a long way from doing that. I'm interested in valuations mostly. And then I'm interested in business conditions under the valuations because as much as we like our own individual names, we are still beholden to what's going on in the rest of the economy and in the rest of you're just not going to soar above the rest of the economy. And if that's one of your assumptions, these massive growth rates in the thing that you're looking at and GDP is a lot lower, then you got to wonder, like, why is that this company so special? And it's possible that it is. The thing that I see, the inversion is something that it's such a simple little thing. We're just looking at the front end of the yield curve versus the back end. Ordinarily, the back end earns more yield because it's riskier. You got to leave the money at risk for longer. Mm-hmm. There's inflation risk. You've got some risk of default, small risk. There is a risk. It's not risk-free. Anything can happen in the interim. Front end, you get the money back much quicker. You don't get as much yield. That's just the way it goes. So when the yield on the front end is much higher than the yield on the back end, there's something funky in the market. And there's something funky now in the market. It's the most inverted it's been, as you indicated. Actually, it's the most inverted it's been between like May and June. Mm-hmm. It got to about 1.89, something like that on the inversion, which I think is the most inverted it's ever been. You can go back to earlier data that's a different data series, and it looks like it was more inverted, but then the current numbers are a little bit different to the numbers that you can pull this. All of this information is available free on the FRED <laughs> data series, and it's started to close up a little bit. So what that means is the front end is sort of settling down a little bit relative to that back end. Every single time we've inverted, and there haven't been a lot, I think there have been eight inversions in sort of modern history that we've been able to track. Every single inversion ends with a recession and a commensurate stock market collapse. So people are wary when the inversion manifests as they should be because Mm -hmm. it's got a pretty good track record, even though it's a very simple indicator. I think the reason that it's got such a good track record is because it's an indication of what's actually happening. The Fed doesn't have a great deal of control over those longer dated maturities. 
to the extent the Fed has control, it's over most of the shorter dated stuff. And it's the Fed seeing a whole lot of inflation because we've printed so much money over the last few years. Mm -hmm. And we can debate whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but we did that. And so now we have a lot of money out there. And that's being reflected in rising consumer price. We've seen it in housing. We've seen it in stocks. We've seen all these little memes. We've seen it in crypto, NFTs, take your pick, all these little micro bubbles or bubbles that we've had over the last few years. Yeah, it's been like and, 1999 on crack for like three years. <laughs> and, and over and over in different things, like it's sort yeah. of a movable feast. It moves from one asset class to the next with no real reckoning other than mm -hmm. just narrowly in that asset class. It hasn't really bled over into anything else, including maybe in like that SVB, <laughs> FRC. Remember when those banks were in trouble at the start of the year and then yeah, we rapidly moved on from that. Just from like, that. <laughs> 2008 was like we were having a repeat of 2008, but then it's like, oh no, we're going, we're pivoting to AI and this is going to be like 99. <laughs> we skated straight over that chasm. We're still going. Yeah. We're still going strong. So I think it's what it is, is actually a reflection of what the Fed's doing. They're trying to suck some of the liquidity out of the system because they're concerned about inflation, which is showing up in consumer prices. And it looks like inflation, they might've got some control over on a year over year basis. We've mm -hmm. certainly not put the genie back in the bottle. Like prices are sort of consistently 40% or so higher than they were before, but the rate of change isn't enough, isn't going up. Paul Krugman's been getting a lot of heat on Twitter because <laughs> he comes out and he says, there's no inflation. Well, if you exclude everything that people buy. <laughs> True, I wasn't even going to mention that, but he says there's no inflation because year over year, it hasn't really even gone up that much. And that's because the peak, of course, was like June last year was massive, was the peak of the year over year change. But everybody knows everything's still 40% more expensive than it was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Everything, housing, cans of beans, gas, everything that you buy. So to the average person, they say, well, inflation's still there. And when we've had experiences like this in the past, in the 70s, you can go back. It's almost an exact replica of that where it looks like the inflation's gone. They jack up the interest rates. It looks like the inflation's gone. Foot comes off the brake a little bit. Inflation comes back again. They're always responding and it takes years to kind of get it under control. So I suspect that's what we're coming into. So the inversion is simply what happens when the Fed goes in to suck some of the liquidity out of the market. And you see the front end goes up like that because that's what they control. They don't control the back end as much. And it typically precedes a crash for the reasons that at the moment, you would say that the Fed has increased rates and there has been no impact. The stock market's essentially up, hasn't come down. Housing still where it is. Like this is this ongoing thing you can hear. Any turn on the news anywhere, you can hear people say it's the most unaffordable housing market ever because mm -hmm. housing's very high, interest rates are very high, and incomes haven't caught up to either of those two things. So one of three things has to happen. Interest rates come back down. That's possible. Incomes go up commensurately harder to see how that happens, possible, but unlikely in my opinion, or housing prices come down a lot. And that to me, that seems probably that's the more likely outcome, even if interest rates come down a little bit. So I think what will happen is what always happens. The Fed just keeps on raising rates until they break something. And mm -hmm. what they're going to break is the stock market and real estate prices. When they do, they'll start cutting. And when they start cutting, because there's quite a long lag between lowering interest rates and the impact in the stock market. It's two years or something like that. They will cut rates many, many times over an extended period of time before we see that show up in stock market prices. So I still think my sort of bias or my guess for what's going to happen here is that rates stay high or increase until the stock market breaks and the housing market breaks and then rates come back down. And that's why I'm interested in the 10-3 inversion and basically a macro. Like that's essentially the extent of my 
macro take. Now, that doesn't impact anything that I do. That's just me sort of <laughs> prognosticating about what's going to happen. Because all I do is buy the cheapest stuff in the market that I think will continue to sort of generate cash flows, whatever we go through here. And the yield on those cheaper stocks is always pretty good. It's not as good as it was in 2009 at the bottom. It's not as good as it was in October last year. October last year was like a 95th percentile opportunity and a lot of values run pretty well from then. But we're kind of back now to where we were in the absolute depths of the, we are looking at like a value as a return series has really, really underperformed. And so the opportunity set, I think on a relative basis in value is about as good as it's been. Yeah, the spread is certainly very high. I know Alpha Architect, they have that nice tool where you can go in and you can look at the value spread. And pretty much by all the metrics, it looks like we're at kind of an historic spread in value versus glamour. Yeah, I mean, even no matter what metric you pick, price to book, price to sales, enterprise multiples, they all seem to be saying the exact same thing, which is that the value decile the market is very, very cheap. And if that shapes up anything like 2000, like you mentioned, we're off to a pretty nice run over the next five to 10 years. And I've said that a few times, to be fair. I don't think that it's not true just because it doesn't manifest immediately after you said, if you just think about what I'm trying to do in the market is just to buy as much business. People will look at it like I'm trying to buy the most earnings or the most balance sheet assets or cash flows or operating earnings or whatever the case may be. And that is true. You can pick one or all of those metrics, but really I'm just trying to buy as much business earning power as I possibly can, however that's defined. And the best way to do it, I think, is to buy the really cheap stuff. Now, I know that there are people who prefer these compounded type businesses, mm -hmm. and that's certainly been the way to do it over the last few years. A lot of the returns have gone to those things. It's just when the yield on a company is, when I say yield, I mean like the free cash flow yield or the earnings yield. I don't mean the dividend. I mean inside the company is normally where I'm thinking. When the yield inside the company on these very good businesses is 2%, and on the junkier businesses, it's like 11%. Provided that the junkie business like keeps on earning at a rate that is about, gives you that 10 or 11% return. Mm -hmm. The 2% earner is a long way behind. Like it's got to grow a lot to deliver commensurate returns. Like if you just do the little calculation, I think that's traditionally why value has been such a strong strategy. It just, it appeals to me logically, but also like as a return stream, it appeals to me because you can just see how hard it is for the grow into these valuations that they're given out of the gate. We've seen some unusual things over the last few years. All of those tech companies like Google and Amazon, Microsoft have all grown beyond base rates, grow very rapidly at scale where that's not really been something that's happened in the past. They've tended to slow down. So it's possible we're in an entirely new paradigm, possible that that's a product of more lax enforcement of antitrust, or it's just the nature of those businesses that sort of distributed network internet business can do better at scale. I don't know the answer. It's, it's one of those things. Maybe it is different still. Like you get these funny days like today where it's Monday, September 18, just if, because I know this will come out after the fact, somebody can go back and have a look. I look at the little morning style box pretty regularly in a day just to see what's happening, just to see what the mood of the market is. Because it tells you it's nine boxes, two axes, and on the axes are size and value versus growth or expensive versus cheap, however you want to characterize it. And so you can see what is small value doing today? What is large growth doing today? What's large value doing? What's small growth doing? And you can sort of look and see where the heat is in the market. And you get these funny days where everything was red today. And I go and have a look at the S&P 500 and somehow the S&P 500 <laughs> is green. And that's the biggest 500 companies in the market. 
dodging all of the raindrops. And I don't really understand how that happens, but what it is, it's seven companies that dodge the raindrops. So you've only got to have seven outperform, which has been the story of the year, right? There's seven biggest companies have done very, very well and pushed up the index and nothing else has really done very well. There's a lot of weakness underneath. To the extent that I'm macro or what causes that unusual behavior, I'm just trying to diagnose what happens. And there's clearly some weakness in the economy, probably driven by the fact that the Fed is sucking liquidity in. Yeah, I have noticed that a lot recently that small value versus large growth will do wildly different things lately. And usually they're kind of similar. Small values up, large growth will be up, and there might be some divergences. But lately it's been one will be down and the other one will be up. And it seems like they're almost two completely different markets. It's pretty interesting to watch. To some extent, I think they are, though. I think that a lot of investors like to be in the stuff that is being talked about. NVIDIA is going to do something and NVIDIA is going to run because I think that people are sort of action junkies and they want to see some action in there. They want the volatility in the stuff that they're sort of trading. And so they tend to be in stuff. That you can go to, I think even Morningstar does this, like what are the big movers? What are the big gainers of the day? And you can go and see this like highly, this sort of rich, colorful picture with red and green and different sizes. And it looks fun. It looks like there's something going on. Or you can be a value guy and you can go and help some of these stocks. Like they really don't trade much. There's nothing happening. There's nothing doing. Mm -hmm. Pretty boring businesses. <laughs> there's nothing exciting about them. You have to be have a slightly longer time horizon when you're looking at them. And the more you do it, I think, the more interesting you realize those things are because you can find some local problem, which is why they've fallen over and why they're in trouble and why everybody's upset about them or bored with them or whatever the case may be. And then you don't have to wind forward very long, like three months or six months. And it's almost like it didn't happen. And I think Meta's a good example of that. You know, Meta yes. last year, there was a point where like below 90 bucks, you're an idiot if you're buying Meta and you needed to have this opinion on all of these. <laughs> we had debates about it on the podcast where people yeah. would say that TikTok's going to eat their lunch and all of these other, I'm like having to go into the weeds there. And I would say, well, it's quantitatively cheap. I mm -hmm. don't know how this gets resolved, but it's quantitatively cheap. It's like a third of the price. If they keep on doing what they're doing or roughly, you don't have to, not even growing. I'm just talking about just keep on earning what they're earning on what it costs them to earn it. This is probably one third of value. And I don't know the answer to any of these other questions. It's just that at this level, I can take a bet and I don't think I need to have an answer. And then you wind forward to now where they've had a pretty good run. Everybody likes them again. Zuck's a genius. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny how that changes. <laughs> and now it's all safe. Like, just don't even worry. Just everybody back on the boat. And at that point, I think all of the people who had all of the criticisms, they don't seem to be as vocal anymore. Now I'm like, now I want to know the answer to those questions. Now you do have to know the answer to those questions. Can they compete? You have to have an opinion at this point because you don't now have the protection of the valuation behind you anymore. It's just a different approach to the market. I know that you were in it. I know that you followed it. So how do you feel? Is that the accurate description of what happened? Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's just funny that people only seem to be cognizant of risks after a drawdown when those same risks existed prior to the drawdown. So TikTok was after a threat. Yeah, TikTok was a threat before Facebook had its big drawdown, but people only seem to talk about that threat after there's a big drawdown in the stock. And it's just funny how people work that way. But yeah, I think it was just a huge sentiment shift. It was worries about Zuckerberg spending all the money on the metaverse. But if you looked at the core business the whole time, the core business is fine. The users are increasing. The amount of time that they're spending on all the sites is increasing. You looked at the financial statements, everything looked fine. That was my perspective on it. And I thought it was all just kind of narrative driven. It was just... yeah. 
the stock was insanely overvalued back during COVID bubble, cooled off from that, and then people had to make up some kind of thesis to explain what had occurred. One of the things that I like to do to sort of immunize myself against that stuff is to go to the Value Investors Club, mm -hmm. which is like 250 of the best value investors in the States at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. who are members of this club. And I think a year after they publish, all of the articles become public. So you can search by ticker. You can go and have a look. Because I run back tests and I'll look at some names that come out and I'll go and see at the time, name will jump out at me and I'll, I'll think that's an interesting name. I'll go and have a look at what people in the Value Investing Club were saying about this name at that time and just see whether their prognostications were right or wrong, were they long or short? What was the crowd in the commentary saying about this sort of thing? Many times they're right. I don't want to make it sound like that. Many times someone will have a long and somebody else will come in in the comments. So one example that I always think about is the ETF company, Wisdom Tree. So Wisdom mm -hmm. Tree, forget the exact vintage, but I'm just off the top of my head. Wisdom Tree was cheap, sort of 2010-ish, something like that. I found it in one of my screens, one of my old screens. And so I just went in there to see what people were talking about. And I think somebody wrote it up as a long. And then in the commentary underneath, someone had said, you know, they've got this sort of like undifferentiated ETFs. They're not going to have a lot of pricing power. It's very, very competitive. I don't think they're going to do that well. And if you go back and look, this, that was a pretty accurate description, I think, probably of what's happened. They've been they've sort of slightly underperformed. They've bumped sideways and they haven't done that well over that long whatever that is, 13 or something, 14, 15 years since that article came out. I think that the lesson that you could take away from that is either that it is possible to know these things at the time or that it is just incredibly difficult. So I tend to be, I largely, that's an example of the other side of the, where we're saying meta was just ignore the narrative and buy on the cheapness. That would have been an example of probably the narrative was right. But I think it's incredibly difficult to know prospectively which one is right. I've run lots and lots of back tests, and I, I like to be quite granular and go in and look at the names and think, would I have bought this at the time? Knowing, trying to ignore what I know now, like either it recovered. It's amazing the number of names in there. I have no idea. I've never heard of these names before. And I've been mm. doing this for a long time. They're just stuff that I've never seen before. And nobody really talks about the gains that these things have made over the years, but the returns have been phenomenal. They're just sort of these little unknown businesses that generate quite good return, but I don't know them because I just don't know the name. And I look at the name and I think, would I buy that at the time? What I have realized is my intuition is terrible when it comes to these things. Because I would say I would be inclined to kind of ignore the screen buying these things mm -hmm. because I could find some local problem with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that what that has done is over the time, I don't think your intuition is just terrible when it comes to these things. My intuition is the crowd. My intuition tells me what the crowd thinks. It's like an axiom of investing that where the crowd is interested in something, they will bid the price up and the future returns are lower. Whether it's crowd is ignoring something or actively scared of it, the price goes down because people don't want to be in it. And the other side of that is that future returns are better. I'm as likely to be persuaded by those narratives as anybody else. So the best thing I can do mostly is just ignore my own intuition, ignore everybody else's narratives because they're going to be wrong and just stick to the numbers, which is why I invest the way that I do. I describe myself as, I don't want to say quant because I'm a lawyer by training. I do have some quantitative methods in my university studies mm -hmm. and I'm interested in statistics and betting. And I find that stuff pretty intuitive. I don't have a PhD from birth. I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I really understand the deeply. When I say I'm a quant, what I mean is that I look at the financial statements to make my decisions and I largely ignore what the crowd thinks is going to happen or even what I think is going to happen. Like we always know why something is cheap. Like we're not finding something 
that's cheap and just, you know, oh, this is such a great business. Why is it so cheap? No, it's always, it's a terrible business or there's something really bad happening. Is it cheap enough to justify how bad that thing that has happened is? And can I hold this thing for a few years until, and not even a few years, until that storm passes or until people forget about it? Does it have the resources to survive that storm? Get out the other side. Is it now discounted enough that you can take that bet where, look, if the storm passes and everything is basically unchanged on the other side of this, this thing probably recovers and it probably trades back to what it should be trading on quantitatively. Yeah. When you do that, I find my strike rate's like 50-50. I don't really even know exactly. If I'm looking at it on a quarterly basis, it's about 50-50. The ones that I'll buy something and it'll be, the market, of course, is completely right. Yeah. About this thing being trash, but I'm like, quantitatively, it's cheap. Market's right. I buy it. Doesn't do very well. And the other half market was wrong and it goes up quite a lot. And you just hope that over time, the ones that go up balance out the ones that go down because the ones that go down have already, they've had the stuffing kicked out of them. They're already pretty cheap. And so the worst case scenario is they kind of bump sideways or they don't do much. Best case scenario is market's completely wrong. Definitionally, to get the good returns, you have to have something unexpected happen. And often the best unexpected thing is it just recovers. The narrative's just wrong. Yeah, and often the models, as you've pointed out in your books, tend to beat human intuition. And you see that again and again. And I see it personally, like a lot of times in my opinions about what's going to happen. For instance, beginning of this year, all the home builders were popping up in all the value screens. And I was like, well, this is crazy. The yeah. yield curve's inverted. We're going to have a recession. <laughs> Mortgage rates are going to go up. How? Why would I buy a home builder? And they've been one of the best performing groups this year. So yeah, it just goes to show you that our intuition and our judgment is extremely flawed. Well, I'm glad you raised the home builders because that was one that I did buy. And you can hear me, all of the podcasts that we record live are still up on the Acquirers podcast on the YouTube channel. You can go and see what we were saying about these things at the time. And I was having trouble squaring that reality too. I'm like, God, I think we're going into a recession. The mm -hmm. only thing I was hanging my hat on at that time was that we had underbuilt so much. I was saying that we've underbuilt to like half the number of houses that we need because there was a big hangover from the 2006, 7, 8, 9 crash. And probably we've not built enough because people are so worried about that. So there's enough room for these guys to keep on building and just generate reasonable returns. Mm -hmm. The reason that they were all really cheap is because lumber had gone crazy. Lumber went for that giant run. And so they were, lumber's a big input. They were all too cheap on that basis. Lumber came back down, which was basically my thesis. Lumber comes back down and these things struggle on. I had no idea that what actually was going to happen was the Fed raises interest rates. That means people can't move. That means people buy new houses because new houses can buy down the rate. And so there's this unusual boom in the sale of new houses. And we were a beneficiary of that because we held lots of home builders and adjacent sort of things. But through no macro view, like just purely because it was too cheap, I fully understood the problem, why they were too cheap, but I just knew that I should fade my own intuition and and got lucky. And that's basically all that. That's what deep value is. You buy a whole lot of things that I know the story as well as anybody else. I know why they're trading where they are. And I also personally think that the crowd is right in many instances. Mm -hmm. It's just that I have done it enough that I know that often the intuition is wrong. The crowd is wrong. The undervaluation eventually works its way out. Not often as quickly as it did, but often it does over a period of time. If your view is three to five years, it'll figure itself out. And that's how you outperform. Like that's just one of the ways that it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to take that contrarian point of view. I'm always amazed that observation that the screen tends to beat most humans. Like, even if you scroll through some of the really simple screens on like AAII, like they mm. have a list of stock screens, the returns that some of these screens have delivered over the last 20 years would make them like 
David and it's incredible that these simple models can tend to do so well over time. Part of the problem is though, you have to be able to stick with them. And so that's the mm -hmm. challenge. And the challenge that I have had over the last few years, value has been so beaten up. And I put this chart up on my Twitter where I went and looked at, I pulled the Ken French, who's half of Famer and French. Famer's got the Nobel for economics. I think, does French have one as well? Maybe, I'm not sure. I think so. Eugene Famer got one. He's got a data library. It's all free. He's been tracking it. I think some of it goes back to 1927. You can get the cash flow to like 1952. You can have a look at what? I think it's the top, it's like two and a half thousand stocks, the largest two and a half thousand. And then he's divided them up into third portfolios of one third, one fifth, one tenth of the market. And you can see how each one of them go. Basically, the cheaper you buy, the better you do over time. If you bought the cheapest portfolio in 1951, held it for a year, rebalanced a year later, and just kept on doing that year after year after year to the present day, you'd have 20 times more money than someone who'd been buying the most expensive stuff. But in 2014, at the peak, you'd have had 80 times more money than somebody who had been buying the most expensive stuff. And so between 2014 and today, you've drawn down 75% against somebody in the most expensive stuff. Mm. And so you'd be feeling fairly silly. And that's a very long drawdown. That's coming up on 10 years now. It's very, very hard for most people to endure drawdown that length of time and that depth or just relative underperformance. I have the good fortune or the bad fortune to just have been doing it in the decade beforehand. So I had started early enough that I enjoyed a lot of that, the value run when the market mm -hmm. was soft. And so I just had it like embedded in my brain that value would eventually outperform, even though really there's not much evidence that that's the case even today. But I still think that logically it should outperform given enough time. And I think we've started to do, I think that's been the case for the last three years, even though we're sort of back to... We've had some good performance, but on a valuation basis, we're basically as cheap relative to the index or the most expensive stuff as we've been at any point in time over the last 70 or 80 years, which is yeah. saying something. Yeah. And one of the challenges when you look at backtest that goes back to 1950, it's easy to look at that and say like, oh, that's easy. You just do the one that makes the most money. But like you mentioned, you go through these periods where it's tough. And the problem is 10 years on a back test, it's not really a big deal, but 10 years in a human life is a big deal. <laughs> so, and a career too, like it's a big part of a career. Yeah. So it's, it's tough to reconcile that, I think, for people. That's what keeps it going. That's what keeps these anomalies or whatever you want to call them going. There's a behavioral pain to them. Because I get that question all the time, like how value is so simple, why does it keep on outperforming? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you have to endure these very long periods. Of, if you can't stand watching the index go up, watching your neighbors get rich when you're not, then you can't do this stuff. Like you'll last a year or honestly, you'll last four months. That's what I think most people last, four months. And then they just put me back in the matrix. I just want the index returns. I don't want to be outside earning <laughs> these terrible returns in these terrible businesses where I know what the problem is. And if you're smart, you're in the compounders because it's obvious that better businesses, they're doing really well. They're growing all the time. Mm -hmm. Why are you wasting your time in these cyclicals? that have all of these other bad things going for them. They're not ESG friendly, <laughs> so on. Yeah, that's the argument you hear. Now, it does seem like in the last few years, I think value has done pretty well. This year is kind of weird, but in 2021, it outperformed. In 2022, value is down less than the market. Your ETF has done really well this year. I think you're up 24%. So it seems like it's starting. I, I think that's right. 
Yeah. I feel that too. I think that it's starting. I think that in the ordinary course, you would expect to have sort of one out of four years under performance and the other three out of four years are pretty good. If you think about the two big anomalies that academic finance people talk about, they say there's value as an anomaly and there's momentum as an anomaly. Mm -hmm. Momentum had its big crash after 2009. That momentum was down 90% in the 2007-89 crash ever really been drawn down that much historically because there's that the way that momentum tends to work is that they look at the preceding period of time, say 12 months is popular, and then you buy and funnily enough, the things that have done the best over the last 12 months tend to be the things that do the best over the next sort of three to 12 months, roughly. And to value investors, it doesn't really appeal to me as an investment strategy. I don't like the fact that you're just buying the stuff that's up the most, but it's very, very robust. It's got very good basis in academic literature. It's pretty well proven out. Lots of big funds do it. It definitely works. It just doesn't appeal to me. But they had a 90% drawdown. And so that sort of changed the risk reward dynamics of that strategy. Mm -hmm. Value hadn't had that, even though the return stream is very, very long until more recently. In the last 10 years, we've really had that, whether it got too popular as a strategy, whatever happened to it, it's now had that same massive drawdown where it changes all of the risk and return dynamics that you can expect from it. And it hasn't really recovered yet. It's still a little bit of a joke, that deep value cyclical stuff. I don't think it's really done well enough to justify its position. It's just, I'm so close to it. I do think that it has turned. I do think it's doing a little bit better. And I think it's still got so much spread behind it. It's got so much tailwind embedded in it and future performance embedded in it that I feel pretty good about it. I did feel good before it recovered too. It's just that as it goes down, your forward returns are getting better, but your current (laughs) returns look terrible. They get worse and worse. And you've got no basis for saying the forward returns look really good because the historical returns look so bad. Well, yeah, I mean, it does seem like something is in the works. So one of the things that I know you focused a lot on is with your portfolio, you mentioned like cyclicals. So we were talking about home builders. I see that you still own some home builders. I also I'm see a lot trying to of... sell them, but I just the screen won't let me sell them. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I interrupted. Yeah, Meritage is one of the home builders that you own. So how do you reconcile that? So you have this view on the economy where you're concerned about the yield curve, like How do you keep yourself from overriding the model where you're going to stick to the plan? I've done it enough times over history and had the model prove me wrong that Mm -hmm. I'm not a pure quant in the sense that the name, the model just spits out the names and I put them in. I run this other analysis of them because I do think that there are some things that the model just misses. It's impossible for the model to know about some off-balance sheet liabilities. And I think there is some risk. What the model tells you is the upside potential of the portfolio, but I don't think it tells you everything about the risk. I think you can look at a name and say it's too risky. And then it's true that even if your assessment of the risk is wrong or whatever the thing that you're concerned about doesn't manifest, then the stock recovers and you miss that return. And so therefore you've made the wrong decision in a quantitative sense. But I think that there's enough. The question I always get is what about survivorship bias? Clearly, if you buy something and it looks like it's going bankrupt and it doesn't go bankrupt, the returns are stupendous. But on a Monte Carlo basis, you know, how many of those things would have slipped through to the other side but for they got lucky about something? I think that's a fair criticism, actually, of value. And so I tend to go through and I look at some of these things where is there some giant liability that's not really reflected in the financial statements, able to be reflected in the financial statements? 
you probably can quantify it and you probably can get it in there and it does change the nature of the valuation. So I think about that. I think about risk first, like which of these things just has too much risk that I can't own. Having said that, I haven't really taken anything out of the screens on that basis. There are some things that business models that don't like. There's some contingent liabilities that I don't like that I would pull out. So far, I haven't had to do any of that, but I do override the model to that extent. But I track the model's performance against my own performance. And what I have noticed is that when the market goes up, I tend to slightly underperform the model. When the market goes down, I tend to slightly outperform the model because probably that risk is, everybody knows about that. So the model's not pure quant model. It's, people call it quantum mental or something like that. It's all a mm -hmm. little bit of nonsense. I'm an old school value investor. I look at the financial statements. I make my decisions on that basis and I look for off-balance sheet contingent liabilities and I factor that in as well. And that's sort of the extent of what I'm trying to do. I'm not bringing in my own thoughts about what the economy is doing or the market's doing or this stock is doing or this anything. I'm trying to make the decision on the numbers quantitatively. So now Zig isn't purely quantitative. So there's a qualitative element to the businesses that you're picking. So do you want to talk a little bit about that qualitative element to Zig? As I described it, I'm not looking so much. Ideally, what I want is a bunch of businesses that will basically keep on doing what they have been doing. I just want them to keep on earning the way they have been. I want the next five years to look like the last five years, roughly. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that they do that, the performance should be pretty good because we're always buying things where we think they're too cheap relative to their earnings power on a pretty conservative basis. And if they can deliver on that, then they're too cheap. And Meta was a good example of that. If it could deliver on what it had done previously, to the extent that the future doesn't look like the past, we'll be completely wrong. Hmm. And I just own that. Like, that's the case. I can't see the future. I'm making my decisions on the future based on what's happened in the recent past. It's going to make lots of mistakes. And it's half the book tends to be mistake at any given point in time. <laughs> half the book, you get lucky because something comes in completely unexpected and it does pretty well. And so that's, I want to capture that. It's not so much the risk, but you know, I don't want to eliminate all of the return potential because I'm plucking out anything where there's any risk. I'm trying to define the risk that I want to capture. And the risk is that maybe it is a business model risk where well, they think the business is going to do worse. And I want those things to sort of be allowed to the market, surprise the stock hopefully to the upside. And when it does, you know, it's as much luck. It is luck. I'm trying to harvest as much luck as I possibly can. I think it started to work a little bit over the last few years where I, for a long time, you needed an opinion on a business model. You needed a compounder to get you going. Yeah, definitely. Now you mentioned risk. So like one of the things that Eugene Fama argues, for instance, is that a lot of the return from value is risk, that you're taking bigger risks than the market. How do you think about that? I think it's a really good question. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I wrestle with a lot because there's two schools of thought, basically. There's the behavioralists who say the reason that these things are cheap is because everybody extrapolates recent performance out into the future. And you shouldn't extrapolate. You should expect mean reversion. That's the behavioralist theory. Mm -hmm. And we're just not very good at understanding mean reversion. We don't intuitively feel like mean reversion is the thing that's going to happen. You can see the price going down, earnings going down. This thing's going to keep on going down until it goes right. to zero. The risk argument is a little bit like I articulated before with the survivorship bias that people will say, well, mm -hmm. these things are going to go bankrupt and you're plucking them off right on the edge and some of them tip over and they're donuts and the ones that don't tip over get a big return. And so the risk is, they will say it's a volatility thing. That's really what they mean. It's bankruptcy risk. So I think there are elements of both. It is true. There are things that if the business just continues on the way that it's going, it will deplete all of the resources and it'll be a donut. But these aren't autonomous 
things. There are people inside there trying to come up with a response to what's happening. And so they're yeah. working really hard to turn the ship around. And often they're in an industry where everybody's going through exactly the same thing. And the weak hands, the under-resourced companies will leave because they can't survive. They'll either be forced out or they'll just go to somewhere where it's easier. They'll go to an adjacent industry, they'll pivot, do something else. And then as often happens, demand comes back for energy. Energy went to negative, oil went negative. If there was ever a bat signal to buy some energy, that was probably <laughs> it. If you're a contrarian, mean reverting kind of person, that was a good opportunity to buy some energy. And then lo and behold, energy, we need energy. We're going to need it for a while. We're back to like $90 oil now. I think that's how it works. There is risk. There is, you can't say that there's no risk in buying these things because it's plain to everybody looking at them that there is some risk in them. You're just betting on the fact that mean reversion is more likely than extrapolation. And so that's also, that's a behavioral. It's so funny that they always say that the arguments in academia are so aggressive because the stakes are so low. <laughs> Yeah. There's these two guys arguing, probably two kind of camps arguing <laughs> basically the same thing, Yeah, using different language and there are slightly different implications for it. And so there's massive stakes, but I think they're probably, given enough context, both are probably pretty right. I believe in some of the risk, but I also believe in the behavioral side as well. Yeah, it's an interesting intellectual discussion. I think most people are probably like, well, I only care if my stocks go up. Yeah. I'm curious about like, well, okay, well, what is causing this anomaly? I think it's an interesting thing to think about. Me too, which is part of the reason that I'm a little bit, I do sort of pay attention a little bit to the macro because I want to understand why value is not performing or why something's happening. Why is this industry beaten up? And often the answer is it's not just one single company that's having the problem. It's the whole industry. Yeah, And the industry is having a problem for an obvious reason. Is that macro? I don't know, but I will go that far and sort of see. Is it likely that that is lumber going to come back to earth? Probably. Did just law of supply and demand in a commodity like that? Yeah, it's likely that lumber's coming back to earth. Likely that the home bills will go up when it does. To think too hard about it. Then beyond that, uh, have we underbuilt? Is the economy in recession? Those are all questions that are above my pay grade. At some point, you kind of have to have a decision rule. And that's the nice thing about the quant investing. There's a decision rule we know now. It's cheap enough to buy. All that other stuff is discussion and narrative and argument. We can have that argument, but I'm going to buy this company, see how it plays out. I'll be right or wrong. And then I'll have a decision point on the other side to sell. And that's the really nice thing I think about the way that the quants run their portfolios or the way that I run my portfolio. March 2020, mm -hmm. I had a rebalance. That was a scary time. I was nervous when I was doing that rebalance, but I knew what I was doing. I knew what names were going in. There was no concern about what was going to happen. It's always the same. You know, sometimes some rebalances are euphoric because I'm selling all these good things, putting in some other cheaper stuff. Some of them are terrifying because I'm buying scary stuff, and selling a whole lot of stuff that's down, but I've got a good decision rule. I can function through them. I think that that's important to be able to know what you're doing at any given point in time. Now, how do you think about selling? So Zig, I know that you rebalance quarterly. Where do you stand on that spectrum of arguments? There's the never sell people. There's the people who say, well, you should hold for a few years. There's Buffett. He says the best time to sell is never, even though he doesn't really follow that himself. Or where do you stand on this argument? Yeah, I have two thoughts. It's true. If you look at S&P 500, take those components, run it against at any given point in time, take a snapshot from 10 years ago, look at their performance versus what actually happened to the index. Those individual names outperform the index. Like That makes no sense. How is that possible? It just seems that buying and holding introduces this wildness into the portfolio, introduces this luck I was mm -hmm. talking about before that you cannot see what's going to happen. And it just like compounds in there. You end up with these portfolios. If you do this stuff, so I've been sort of experimenting with this thing. 
I call it like the ghost ship strategy. So basically the idea is run a screen. Like I like just price the cash flow, run, buy the cheapest, take an index, S Russell 3000, buy the 300 cheapest on a price to cash flow basis or the 30 cheapest, it doesn't matter. And then never, ever trade them. Just leave them. You find that over a period of about five years, because you're buying these things that are cheap on a price to cash flow basis, across the portfolio, your yield can be anything from like 10 to 15%, often in that kind of range, you're getting a lot of yield. So you think about three years of those prices at a 15% yield, you're getting, you've got 45% cash flow coming back. And if then you add in other things like does it buy back stock and so on, you find that about a third of the capital comes back to you after about five years. Hmm. And I think that's kind of extraordinary. Like you have to actively keep on investing what is a set and forget, never sell portfolio. It has to be kind of managed all the time because these cash flows are coming back in. And then you get these returns where if something works, and this is what happens, like there's a distribution of returns from stuff that goes to zero pretty quickly. Stuff has a little run and then goes to zero. Mm -hmm. Stuff does sort of okay over a period of those years, like keeps up with the market. And then you have these monster returns in there. And so the portfolio gets heavily weighted towards the thing that has done the best over the decade or so since you put this portfolio together. And you end up with this thing that looks like it's Kelly weighted into all the best <laughs> names. That are, You look like this investing genius having just randomly selected the cheapest 30 names in a portfolio. So it definitely works. I don't know that that makes you an investing genius to have done it that way, but mm -hmm. it, it creates the illusion having held for long enough. But that's not what I do in Zig. So in Zig, I rebalance on a quarterly basis. I have an opportunity set that we're tracking all the time, ranking, force ranking these names because it's just the way that it has to be. I hold the cheapest 30, cheapest and best 30 at any given point in time. Over the quarter, the portfolio diverges from the optimal portfolio that I track. And so we rebalance back into the optimal portfolio. It creates these silly things at the edges where sometimes a name will come in and out because it's just sitting. It'll be the 30th cheapest stock and it'll go in. Then the rebalance date, it's the 35th. So it goes back out and then it comes back in, becomes the 30th. And it looks like I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm, I look like I can't make up my mind, but it's really, it's just the opportunity set has to be the best at any given point in time. So the effect of it is maybe there's a little bit more trading than you would otherwise ideally like. But I think that given the nature of what the portfolio is trying to achieve, which is holding the 30 cheapest names at any given point in time so that it's evergreen, so that anybody coming in can invest. I encounter many investors who've held onto things for, they've got a big chunk of Microsoft in their portfolio. It's 10 or 15% of their portfolio because they bought it and never sold it. Buffett, he, he's got Apple at 50% right now. <laughs> Good for him. That's a good problem to have, but it's still, it's a problem. He yeah. does have to, it happened with Coke, right? He had mm -hmm. gigantic holding in Coke. He knew it was overvalued. His solution to that was to go and buy General Re, which had a big bond portfolio and blend it with Berkshire's equity holdings and then get a big premium for Berkshire, get a big discount for Gen Re, put the two together and you dilute your book down. So your equity holdings are now, it's not as big a chunk of the book. It's a much, much smaller chunk of the book. You've got the bonds there, which will do well in a crash. As rates go down, bond portfolios tend to go up. Mm -hmm. So that was his solution to it. I can't do that in mind. I'm just always trying to be in the cheapest stuff. Some people have this idea that that helps you in a crash, that being in the cheapest stuff. And often that's based on what happened in the early 2000s because the market crashed and value did pretty well. But go and have a look at what happened in 2007, 8, 9. Value crashed just as hard. Have a look at March 2020. Value crashed harder than the rest of the market. Value is really not a protection. Having said that, overpaying is likely to ordinarily leads you to underperform in a crash too. You might not be able to escape being in value, 
like the experience of the index, but you might be able to escape the experience of the very worst stocks, which is probably good enough. So value does provide some protection in that sense, but it's going to be correlations go to one, everything goes down. And if we go through a 50% haircut, sometime through here, value will get the 50% haircut too. Yeah. In a crash, there's nowhere to hide in the stock market. They're, all stocks are rough. You want to be in treasuries or gold or hopefully have some managed futures or something. That's what's going to perform in a crash, not... Uh, <laughs> not some specific sector or style, I think. Do you think we get a little 10-year rally in this, if we go through anything? You mean in the 10-year treasury? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, rates rally, bonds rally. I think so. If you have a bad stock market crash and say you have a big stock market crash, we go into a brutal recession, that should ease inflation pressures. We might even be looking at deflation. At that point, the Fed has to go to back to zero. There's no option. So yeah, I mean, at that point, treasuries are going to do really well, which would probably make a lot of sense because everybody is on the opposite side of that trade right now. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, who are these fools who own treasuries? And after interest rates have increased, this inflation, they're all in on this inflation trade. And it just, I don't know, the market gods would seem to... They're trying to maximize the pain for the most people, embarrass the most people. Yeah. That's what the market tends to do, I think. Whatever <laughs> is the most embarrassing, painful thing for the most people is, is the direction that we're taking. So the thing that makes most people wrong. So that would be it. That would be the pain. We'll I think see. we get a little rally too when it happens. You could look at an ETF like T that's often the, that holds the 10 year and you can. Well, I hold it. I hold VGLT, the Vanguard one in my asset allocation, and it's been painful, but thing about that is I also have some gold. I also have value. I also have some international. So you've always um, got some winners and some losers. That's sort of the way to do it, isn't That's good diversification. Yeah, that's the idea is to not try to predict what's going to happen, but there's some little thing in there that should do okay, regardless so, of what happens from the macro. Be, you're, gonna, you're not going to be value stock geek. You're going to be it's the Ray Dalio all weather geek. Well, I do a little bit of both. So I have my asset allocation, the weird portfolio, and then I also have my stock picking. So I really enjoy the stock picking, but then I use the asset allocation as kind of... I think that's a, a smart approach. Tool Does for that, my... that helps you thinking by having them separated out. Asset allocation is one approach. Stock picking is a subset and a different approach. Yeah, exactly. And it's it does help my stock picking because I have this kind of safe money that I know can survive yeah. anything. And then I have this money that I can really go for it. And I can try to actually analyze businesses and try to outperform. That's an underappreciated aspect of what many of the best investors have had, that they don't have the need for this money. Like they're not saving up for a house. They're not whatever the case may be, like most of us are trying to save and invest and we need to get the return on that money. Would say it's the longing or the Stoics would say it's wanting is the thing that it's the need to generate the returns is the thing that ultimately kills you. And you kind of need to be a little bit divorced from it where you can say it looks like if this is a possibility, it's a longer shot, but it's a possibility and it, for the repayment is there. The reward is there for the risk taken. There's enough reward there and you don't have to worry about it. And so you can be patient. But I think that you're not patient because it's some interior quality of you as a person. It's not a personality trait. It's part of the way that you've constructed your portfolio. You've structured your life. It's the patience is structural rather than personality. And I think that Buffett will say the same thing. He, he quotes, I think it's Benjamin Franklin or something where he says, we build our houses, we shape our houses and our houses shape us. And I kind of think that's right. The structure that you build dictates how you invest or the way that you approach it, your need for that money dictates how you invest. 
and you need to get to the point where you can truly treat this as very long-term money. And then you find that you're a much, much better investor because you don't need it. Or you've got some macro thing in the background that seem not so worried about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So speaking of stoicism, I know you were working on that book on invincibility. I wanted to ask, how's that progressing? The book's finished. Oh, wow. Okay. Editor, it's back. I'm looking at the covers. So I just, the story is, I looked at, I've been reading Sun Tzu's Art of War mm -hmm. since I read it in high school. I've read it every five years or so since, trying to understand why people like it. Couldn't ever figure it out because it made no sense to me. And it had all these helpful instructions. If you're going through a marsh, if you're attacked <laughs> in a marsh, get your back up against some trees and be able to defend yourself there. And I thought that's, <laughs> that's not at all helpful <laughs> to me in my life. So this book is useless. And people who are saying that they're seeing things in here as emperor's new clothes, saying that they can see the emperor's new clothes. But through much 2020 or 2020, when stock markets got crushed and we had all of the other COVID silliness and the COVID response and all that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. I read that book and then I realized what Sun Tzu was saying in there was, there are many things that are beyond your control, but there are many things that are within your control. The things that are within your control, you should go and conduct research, understand your craft, understand what you're doing. And one of the things that you can do, you cannot create the opportunity in the enemy because the enemy has to make a mistake. I think about this in terms of the stock market. The stock market is the enemy for me. I don't have any enemies that I'm thinking about battling with. <laughs> I just mean that he says, make yourself invincible and then wait for opportunity. So spend all of your time working defensively. Don't make your own mistakes. Don't create your own vulnerabilities. You're on solid footing and then just wait patiently for the other side to make its mistake. And that's your opportunity to then continue on beyond that. And as I was reading that, I thought that's exactly, that's really what Buffett says too. Buffett's saying, think about the downside. And so is Graham. I think Graham is much more Sun Tzu than Buffett is, but I think they're both, Buffett is very much Sun Tzu as well. And I think that they just say, be careful of the downside, wait for your opportunities, don't force it. And then it turns out there are different interpretations of Sun Tzu. So the original one was written in 1910 or sorry, when I say the original one, it was the, the ancient Chinese. Yeah, the ancient Chinese text is two and a half thousand years old. And there's some dispute over who actually wrote it or whether it was one person or two people or, or what the function of this thing actually was. But it was translated into French by in the Napoleonic era. And then it was finally translated into English in 1910, which is very, very recent. And the guy who translated it had some knowledge of military history. And so he put it into that context. And I love his translation and I love all the notes that go to his translation. It's all available free on the internet. It's fascinating. And then there are more recent translations that take, because it's written in ancient Chinese, it's not even modern Chinese, the interpretations of what is being said or what Sun Tzu was saying are widely different, wildly different. And some are poetic and some are probably not what he meant. I've used a little bit of both because there's a, one of the more modern interpretations looks at it from a Taoist perspective and says it's one of the three great works of Taoism that came because they all came out at about the same time and they used some of the language and the phrasing is very similar. Mm -hmm. So Sun Tzu uses some of this phrasing that you will find in Lao Tzu's The Way and Its Power. What's the Tao Te Ching? The Tao Te Ching. Yeah. And the Zhuangzi are the sort of two foundational books along with The Art of War. And then when you look at the Tao Te Ching, which is like one of the original works on Taoism or the original work on Taoism, it's actually a lot more martial than you'd expect. They talk a lot about armies and about fighting. And I was sort of shocked, had any experience with Taoism. I'm not Taoist. I like some of the ideas in these books. I think they're helpful to people who are in businesses where there's some uncertainty and you don't know what the future looks like and how you can progress through them. So I've included some of these ideas from the Tao Te Ching to the extent that it sort of is already reflected in the art of war and just trying to explain what 
Sun Tzu was saying when he was using some of these phrases. To me, it was all very helpful. It sort of did really refine the way that I think about investing. And when the book comes out, I hope people find it as useful as I have, because I'm excited by it. It felt like, it's not like Buffett follows Sun Tzu or Buffett follows Taoism. I mean, the Stoics are, I think the Stoics are indistinguishable from the Taoists in the way that they think about the world. I think they all have, you know, the Stoics would call it a more fate, which is love your fate. Marcus mm-hmm. Aurelius says, love your fate. Play the hand that fate deals you as if it's your own, you know, but what else could you do? And then the Taoists have this idea of Wu Wei and just accepting what they call it the way, which is the way that the universe is going to do what it's going to do. Things are going to unfold the way that they're going to unfold. But if you're smart about it, you can position yourself so that you are beneficiary of this flow of the universe, the way. And if you achieve this sort of alignment with it, you enter this state called Wu Wei, which is effortless achievement or effortless success. And it's basically, it's Buffett buying Apple when it gets too cheap. Because he can see that there are all of these factors coming together. You can see how much they're buying back. You can see they're about to go through an iPhone cycle. All of these things were going to happen at the same time. And he was buying just before all of that happened. And he had this massive Lollapalooza outcome as a result of him just sort of narrowing it down to these factors. And there's a big psychological element to what Sun Tzu and Lao Tzu and the Stoics and all of these guys do. And understanding that psychology, I think, is what really distinguishes Buffett from everybody else. Buffett's got this incredible ability to divine what people feel about Coke or what people feel about C's or what people feel about Apple. Like he's really looking for those consumer franchises where there's some psychological hole. If you think about what Coke is, it's really sugar water that is indistinguishable from its nearest competitor, but it massively outsells its nearest competitor. Makes no sense. It's just that it's been around for so long. It's deeply embedded in the fabric of Americans and the world globally that it's able to do some unusual things. And he's looking for things that are like that, where C's is a micro example of what Coke is. And I think that mm-hmm. understanding C's is what helped him identify Coke. And that's sort of the way he operates. So that's what the book's about. Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like it's going to be super interesting. And I agree, Buffett is the ultimate representation of that whole philosophy. As for Coke, The explanations I've heard are that Coke is really good with food. So like Pepsi is sweeter and you might like it on your first sip, but when you're eating something and you have a Coke, that that pairs better. The other thing I've heard is Buffett has talked about it. There's no taste memory to Coke. Mm -hmm. So it's like, if you're drinking like root beer all day, you'll get really sick of it. But something about Coke, you can just drink it constantly and you'll be happy with it. So The absence of taste memory. I'll tell you something funny about Coke. The WHO came out and said, Diet Coke, the phenylalanine in Diet Coke, whatever it breaks down into, is toxic for you. And so people panicked a little bit. And so I went and looked at it and they put Diet Coke and phenylalanines in the same category along with things like brine from pickle juice and stuff like that. So when they say it's toxic, what they mean is that you've got to drink vast quantities of it all the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe there'll be some toxic effect. I'm not saying that that stuff is good for you. I don't think that <laughs> Diet Coke's good for you at all. But I do think it's funny. I did notice this in my behavior that I hadn't had a Diet Coke in like five years. I hadn't had a Coke. I hadn't had any Coke Zero or anything. I had never gone and had one. And then seeing all of that bad publicity about it, I started drinking Diet Cokes again because <laughs> I was like, actually, I do remember these things taste pretty good. And so I've been drinking them since. And I think it's such a funny thing that. It was the WHO warning. And I thought, these guys are pretty clever. They're pretty good marketers. I wouldn't be surprised if it's probably been on that list for 10 years and they just came out and said, hey, just let everybody know. Diet Cokes, <laughs> it's on that toxic list. Go have a look. It's not that toxic. You can keep on drinking it. Yeah. I, I just think all of that stuff is going on now. I think it's all the psychological games, I think, are so sophisticated now that you have really no chance. 
Yeah, probably. Yeah, but I agree with you. It's delicious. I enjoy it <laughs> every once in a while. <laughs> I drink a lot of cold brew, but cold brew is great because there's nothing else in it. But every now and again, you want that fake sweetness. Diet Coke, it's hard to beat. It's a really good drink. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a question from Twitter. Someone asked, are there any timelines for when your ETFs will be available in the UK? As soon as I possibly can. The problem is that this is a small outfit and I got to do a lot of that stuff. And I've been trying to get the book out because I've had a lot of questions about the book. Oh. The book is done now. And so I will be in a book promotion mode at some point in the next few months. And then I'll try and get the use. I would love to had lots of inquiries. I'm very grateful for those inquiries. The problem is that there's, a, I'm a small business guy. There's a material cost to a lot of this mm. stuff. And so I have to kind of make sure that the, I can either support it for a period of time or there's a big enough opportunity on the other side. And so I always have this conservative as a small business guy, because I like surviving. I like being here next year and I try not to spend too much that I don't have to spend, but I do want to do it. And it is going to come out at some point in the not too distant future. Cool. Thanks for the question. Awesome. It's been really great talking to you and thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.